You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. I am Demet Chanakchi, Program Director at Toronto Centre. This is the first podcast of Toronto Centre's Supervisory Guidance Notes series, or TC Notes for short. TC Notes are meant to provide practical guidance to financial sector supervisors on key supervisory challenges. My guest today is Barry Johnston, the author of the TC Note on Integrating Microprudential Supervision with Macroprudential Policy, which was published last month. Barry is a former assistant director of the International Monetary Fund with more than 30 years experience in assisting countries with financial sector policies, assessments, and analysis. Among his many responsibilities during his career, Barry was chief of the IMF division that developed the IMF's financial sector assessment program. Following the 2008 global financial crisis, he led the IMF BIS FSB team that developed the methodology to assess systemically important financial institutions. Since retiring from the IMF, Barry has consulted for Toronto Centre, the IMF, the World Bank, and national authorities on topics including macroprudential policy, financial sector surveillance and assessments, financial crisis preparedness and resolution, financial crisis simulations, international regulatory codes and standards, and identification of systemically important financial institutions. And the bio goes on and on. Barry, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Hello, Demet. It's a pleasure to participate in this Toronto Centre podcast and to speak to you on the topic of integrating micro-potential supervision with micro-potential policy. Now, one of the challenges in many of the countries that I've worked in is coordination among agencies, say between the central bank and the supervisor, or between the supervisor and the resolution authority. There are, of course, good reasons for this, as each agency operates under its own legal mandates and responsibilities. However, the financial stability challenges that authorities face are often highly complex and difficult to compartmentalize within a single agency. Hence the need for collaboration across agencies. The technical note that we will discuss today deals with one of the aspects of this collaboration, and that is how micro-prudential supervision and macro-prudential policy should be integrated for effective oversight of financial systems. Thank you for authoring this important TC note for us again, Barry. I wonder if you could start us off by explaining what the macroprudential approach is and how it differs from traditional microprudential supervision. Demet, thank you for that question. Traditionally, microprudential supervision 
focused on the risks in individual financial institutions, markets, or instruments. For example, bank supervision identifies a number of what are known as inherent risks confronting an individual bank, such as its credit risk exposures, liquidity risk, operational risk, and the arrangements to mitigate these risks, such as its capital adequacy and risk management practices. Now, by contrast, macroprudential policy focuses on the safety and soundness of the financial system as a whole and the impact of the financial system on the real economy. This broader net risk is what is known as uh, systemic risk, the threat that financial sector failures will damage the real economy. And by this, we mean people's income and their livelihoods, their employment prospects, their wealth and their welfare. The micro-prudential approach traditionally focused on one aspect, and that was preventing failures in individual institutions, markets or instruments. But historical experience has shown that that is not sufficient to prevent broader failures in financial systems or, or financial crises or systemic risk. In fact, the, um, the global financial crisis of uh, 2008 was a dramatic illustration. Western countries were implementing a sophisticated system of microprudential supervision, but this did not prevent, and in some respects it may even have contributed to the financial failures. So um, a key lesson from the global financial crisis was a need to develop a macroprudential approach focusing on the identification and mitigation of systemic risk. Thank you, Barry. Can you please elaborate on the reason why these two approaches have to be integrated by the supervisor authorities? And what are the main elements of macroprudential supervision? Well, as I, I mentioned at the beginning, one of the enduring challenges of oversight of financial systems is collaboration among agencies. No single agency has the legal powers or the expertise to address the complex challenges in financial systems. This is very much the case in the identification and mitigation of systemic risk. Because systemic risk involves elements of the inherent risks in individual institutions, markets or instruments where the supervisors are in the lead. But it also involves risk elements which are due to what are known as externalities. Now, these are risk factors that are not evident on the balance sheet of an individual institution, but which can impact other financial institutions and the stability of the financial system as a whole. Let me give you an example to illustrate. Say if a financial firm A were to fail, the impact of that failure on another firm, financial firm B, the microprudential approach would traditionally focus on the risks on firm A's balance sheet and would not take account of the potential knock-on effects to firm B. Now, the assessment of systemic risk requires that we understand both 
the inherent risks, those are the risks on the Fermi's balance sheet and the risks from the knock-on effects, what we would call the externalities, in this case, the implication of Fermi's failure on the broader financial system. So in identifying these latter risks, the externalities, is usually the responsibility of the macroprudential authority. So we need both the micro and the macroprudential approaches, and we need to integrate them to fully understand the risks both to individual institutions and to the financial system more broadly. Now, you also asked, Matt, you also asked about the main elements of macroprudential supervision. Now, we probably don't have time in this podcast to go into all the details, but the central element is a macroprudential or financial stability assessment. These are the type of assessments that I was involved in, as you mentioned in the introduction, in the IMF as part of the financial sector assessment program. And there are also the types of assessments that are conducted regularly by national authorities. Now, these assessment teams, the teams that conduct the assessments are typically multidisciplinary. So they involve microprudential supervisors. And over the years, I've worked very closely with many microprudential supervisors but it also includes uh, microfinancial experts. These typically are economists or econometricians used to modeling and assessing financial systems more broadly. So these uh, financial stability assessments examine both the risks in the individual institutions, individual markets, the instruments, and the arrangements to mitigate the risks in those individual institutions. And that's where the Microprudential component comes in, but they also focus on the system-wide risk, the externalities, and that's the microprudential component. And perhaps I could just add here that um, one of the important microprudential considerations is the examination of the interconnections between financial institutions. Uh, because these interconnections can amplify the impact of a shock on one financial institution on the financial system more broadly. And for example, an issue that our FSAPs identified quite early on was the exposures and dependency of some financial systems on a few very large banks. And so these exposures were extreme that if one of the large banks were to fail, the whole system would fail, as these banks were intimately involved in many aspects of uh, financial intermediation, bonds, securities, money markets, as well as bank credit deposit taking. And following the global financial crisis, these concerns with large institutions have been elaborated into the work on identifying and mitigating the risk posed by what are known as systemically important financial institutions. Another macroprudential concern are the potential feedback loops between 
the financial system and the real economy. And uh, just to explain what I mean by the feedback loops, uh, so in good times when things are going well in the economy, asset prices tend to be rising, elevated, and credit in the banking system is expanding, and that's boosting economic activity, and it's also raising asset valuations. So it's giving a positive stimulus. Financial is giving a positive stimulus to the real economic activity. However, the, the problem is in bad times, the process goes into reverse. So as the economic activity and asset prices begin to decline and loan delinquencies increase, the banks tend to withdraw credit from the financial system. And this acts to accelerate economic contraction. So these feedback loops contribute to what are known as the boom-bust cycles in economies. So I would summarize by saying this is all by way of saying that the micro-credential approach has to take a, a broader perspective on the risks in the financial system than the micro-credential approach. Excellent. Thank you so much for this, Barry. You mentioned systemic risk in your responses a couple of times. How can supervisors identify vulnerabilities to systemic risk? Can you briefly talk about the process? Well, Demet, supervisors on their own are not in a good position to identify all the exposures in the financial system. Uh, because the supervisors tend to focus on, say, a separate second, the banks or the insurance or the securities market. So they're not looking across the financial system broadly. And so to develop the systemic risk assessment, they will need to cooperate with the macro prudential authority, which is conducting these broader assessments. I should mention here that when I talk about the macro prudential authority, this might be assigned to the supervisor, the microprudential authority, or to another agency such as the central bank or to a committee involving multiple agencies. So when I speak of cooperation with the microprudential authority, this might be a separate department within the microprudential supervisor or another agency. And uh, different countries have developed uh, different institutional frameworks that really reflect their own national um, circumstances. However, I think what is critical in all of these arrangements, uh, regardless of how they've been set up institutionally, is that there is a need for collaboration between the micro and macro prudential authority. And this type of collaboration involves, for example, information sharing, and consultation both in identifying the systemic risks and how to respond to them. Let me give you a sort of a couple of examples of what sort of uh, feedback the micro-prudential supervisor might expect to receive. Uh, you know, if the micro-prudential supervisor is designing some stress tests of some individual institutions, it should probably consult with the macro-prudential authority to help identify the factors and the design of these stress tests. For example, 
The feedback from the micro prudential authority might include the priorities on what institutions should the stress tests be focused, how severe should they structure the stress tests, for example, to take account of the types of feedback loops that I've just mentioned, or the uh, micro prudential authority might give them advice on what specific risks they want to include in the stress test. For example, it, it might be uh, you know on specific sectors, specific types of credit exposures, or maybe operational cyber risks, for example, if they consider they were of systemic concern. And on the other hand, you know, the microprudential authority will have to be relying on the microprudential supervisors for detailed information on individual institutions. And that reflects the fact that the microprudential supervisors are intimately knowledgeable of the, of the institutions that they supervise. And they're also likely to be uh, confidentiality uh, conditions on sharing certain supervisory data with the, with the microprudential authority. So the microprudential will be relying on the microprudential authority for its assessment of individual institutions. I think this is all by saying that the collaboration between the micro and microprudential authority is essential in systemic risk identification. And this will be true also in designing the, um, the appropriate policy response to systemic risk. Many thanks, Barry. We will get back to this uh, collaboration uh, issue in a couple of minutes. But before that, I have a follow-up question. How macroprudential approach helps supervisors mitigate the systemic risk? What kind of tools do they have at their disposal? So, uh, following the global financial crisis of 2008, there were several revisions to the international supervisory and regulatory architecture to, to address systemic risk. I think we will probably discuss this a bit further later in the podcast. But among the revisions was the attention to the identification and mitigation of risks posed by systemically important financial institutions. Now, as you mentioned in your introductory remarks, I was deeply involved in the development of the approach to identifying systemically important financial institutions. And the methodology that our team developed was subsequently adopted with sector-specific uh, modifications by the international supervisory standard-setting bodies. And as a result of this, the risks posed by the systemically important financial institutions were incorporated into the micro-prudential supervisory frameworks. And a very specific example is the Basel III rules that were developed in the wake of the global financial crisis. As these include uh, additional capital charges and more intensive supervision for systemically important, uh, both globally systemically important banks and domestically systemically important banks. I might add that the Basel framework also includes what is known as the counter-cyclical capital buffer. And that is designed to help address the risks from the feedback loops that I mentioned earlier. 
I think these are two good examples of the specific tools that supervisors have at their disposal to address systemic risk. Let me mention another area where the macroprudential approach helps supervisors mitigate systemic risk, and that's in the targeting of their risk-based supervision. Now, I think as our listeners uh, probably know, risk-based supervision focuses on the most important risks. That's to say those that risks that could cause maximum damage to users of financial services or the financial system, and what we can um, characterize as, as systemic risk, which is exactly the object of our macroprudential assessment, which are assessing uh, developing analysis of the most important systemic threats. So the sources of systemic risk that uh, could be identified might be the CIFIs that I've mentioned, the systemic important institutions that I mentioned, or the microprudential assessment might be identifying the risk factors, such as there's excessive growth in the mortgage market, the housing market, or excessive leverage, or risks to types of operational risks. Or it might be the microprudential authority might be identifying, say, risks posed by innovations in the financial system, new instruments or channels of intermediation. And so I think these macroprudential assessments provide information that is extremely useful to the supervisors in prioritizing their risk-based supervision. And I think the other advantage of the supervisors drawing on these macroprudential assessments is that they... Uh, These assessments are normally prepared fairly frequently, annually or semi-annually. So they are a way for the the risk-based supervisor payments to remain current and up-to-date on the critical sources uh, of uh, systemic risk. I might also add that um, supervisors are always, they're always confronting an evolving frontier of new risks. For example, and it's uh, clearly uh, reflected in the Toronto Centre's programs and its uh, its broadcasts and on its site, that uh, supervisors are currently being asked to look at questions such as sustainable development goals and financial inclusion. They're being asked to examine the growth of fintech and crypto assets. Uh, there are being concerns about the cyber threats to the institutions that they regulate and the risks posed by climate change. And certainly in the last year, they have been confronted with the, the COVID-19 pandemic risks. Now, um, to supervisors, this is quite a daunting list of issues and a focus on the systemic threats that these evolving channels pose to their national economies can help them prioritize to decide between these evolving frontier risks what's actually most critically important in their national context. And so they, it this helps them decide between these competing demands in allocating their very much scarce and sought-after supervisory resources. 
Thank you, Mary. I couldn't agree more. It's quite a list for supervisors. Now back to the collaboration issue. Um, as you mentioned in your responses and in the TC note in more detail, systemic risk is a system-wide concept. So coordination among the authorities is the key to success. How can this be handled in practice given different mandates of the national authorities? Demet, this is a very good question. In my experience, it's not simply a question of mandates, though these are obviously important. You know, coordination and cooperation among agencies involves people. And that uh, has great strengths, but also in some circumstances can create weaknesses. For example, I have observed situations where there were limited formal arrangements for coordination but informal cooperation among agencies was excellent. But unfortunately, I have also observed the reverse. So the practical question you raise is, I think, uh, very, very important. Well, some of the elements that I have observed in my experience that can help smooth the collaboration and coordination, though I do, again, emphasize it does involve people, but some of the factors are, you know, the composition of the governing boards of the different uh, collaborating organizations. Do they have representation from the other cooperating agencies? Also, the culture that is established by the senior management in the organizations in their own communications and consultations. and. Um, what can also help is the secondment or transfer of staff from one agency to another so they can understand the internal culture of the cooperating organizations and how best to communicate and coordinate effectively with it. In fact, in my own career, when I started work at the Bank of England, I was seconded, uh, they seconded me first to the uh, Bank for International Settlements. And later in my career with the bank, uh, they seconded me to our British Treasury. So I can uh, speak to the benefits of um, having secondments to strengthen your knowledge of how other organizations work and to help you collaborate with them. But I mentioned another important aspect is for the institution to appreciate in practice the critical importance of coordination and collaboration. This often requires actual experience. You have to be really in the front line and experience why you need to cooperate and what are the pitfalls of not doing it. But one way of bringing this uh, practical experience is through simulations. And uh, the Toronto Centre does this as part of its crisis management simulations because these simulations help to highlight the importance of coordination and cooperation. And indeed, in the, in the simulations that I've been involved in with the Toronto Centre, one of the key learning notes that participants nearly all, I would say always, identify at the end of our simulations is this idea of coordination and cooperation, how important this is, how critical it was to come to the solutions that were needed to deal with the challenges that we had uh, created during the simulation. Thank you very much for sharing your experiences, Barry. That was very useful. 
Now moving on to the regulations, following the global financial crisis, the international standard setters also modified the supervisory core principles. In your opinion, what are the most important revisions in terms of improving microprudential supervision? Demet, I think I would uh, mention two revisions that I would consider most important. Um, the first would be the revisions to the supervisory court principles. And by those, I mean those the ones developed by the Basel Committee for Banking, the International Association of Insurance Supervisors for Insurance, and the International Organization of Securities Commissions for Securities. And the revisions to their core principles uh, post-global financial crisis was to recognize the mitigation of systemic risk as a core objective of microprudential regulation. Prior to the revisions, the regulatory frameworks focused on mitigation of the inherent risks that we discussed. Those are the risks on the balance sheets of the individual institutions or individual markets or instruments. But the revisions following the global financial crisis significantly modified this approach and incorporated new elements to take account of the sources of systemic risk and to adopt policies to mitigate them. So this would be the first, I think, the major thing that I would emphasize. The second one was I think the development by the Financial Stability Board of what are known as the key attributes of effective resolution regimes for financial institutions and their adoption as a new international standard. Now, these key attributes provide a framework to resolve failing financial institutions without creating systemic risk and avoiding moral hazard and the fiscal costs of government bailouts. And by allowing for orderly resolution of financial institutions, the key attributes provide a framework for disciplining financial institutions, even large ones. And this provides an important additional degree of freedom for microprudential supervisors. And it has helped to reduce the moral hazard in the financial system. And I would say the more supervisors can rely on market discipline to price and manage inherent risk, the more they will be able to turn their attention and supervisory resources to mitigation of systemic risk. Thank you very much, Barry. I think this is a good place to conclude the conversation. It's fascinating. I have learned a lot about the codependency of micro and macroprudential supervision. Do you have any final comments? Uh, no, I have no final comments to Matt. I would just only wish to thank you and the Toronto Centre for hosting this podcast. And I look forward to collaborating further with the Toronto Centre in the future. Thank you, Barry. And many thanks for being such a strong supporter of Toronto Centre. Much appreciated. I encourage participants to read the TC note, which can be found in the Resource Centre on our website. 
I'm here today with Barry Johnston, and you have been listening to Toronto Center's first episode of TC Notes podcast series. Thank you for joining us today, and stay tuned for the next episodes. Thank you.